Since this is the first Lord's Day of the month, we as pastors have decided, as most of you know, to devote these first Sundays of the month adult Bible classes for a review of church polity. I'll explain that word in a moment. You could say church, the church constitution. And this is not meant to be dusty, dry, dull, but it is meant to be practical and pastoral. And so this morning we continue that study of some biblical truths and principles which provide the foundation and the framework of the church constitution of Trinity Baptist Church. And recently as pastors, we discussed that perhaps a better, better title for these classes instead of a review of our church constitution is a review of our church polity. And polity means policies and practices, a review of some of those policies, practices, which we have agreed to live by as members of the church under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, under the uh, sovereign governing of the word of God. Now, Pastor Hoffmeyer has already conducted the first three of these classes, and this morning I pick up where he left off. And I don't expect that you've all brought the church constitution with you, but if you did, we are in Article 5, Roman numeral 5, entitled Church Membership. It's page 3 of the church constitution. And Section 1, and this is where Pastor Hoffmeyer uh, was in his last study in this class, we read an overview of the requirements of membership. And again, this is not intended to be dry and boring. I hope it won't be this morning. But Pastor Hoffmeyer addressed the following five requirements that are listed in that introductory paragraph there in section one of Article 5 of the Church Constitution. And those first five requirements that were listed, which Pastor Hoffmeyer addressed, and showing scripture support for those requirements, they were the following. First of all, a man or woman. It's only men and women. And specifically, therefore, we don't have infants as church members. We don't have children as church members because the Bible makes it plain that those who are to be baptized and become a member of any biblical church are to be adult men, adult women. But secondly, if any individual desires to become a member of TBC, Trinity Baptist Church, that should be someone who professes repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, it should be an individual who manifests a life transformed by the power of Christ. It's not enough, in other words, to say, I believe I'm a Christian, but your lifestyle doesn't show that reality. It shows worldliness, shows sinfulness. No, those who would desire to become members, those who are members, should manifest a life transformed by the power of Christ. The fourth requirement is that a man or woman who wants to be or is a member of the church should be living a life consistent with the provisions of the Constitution set forth in this article, and specifically Section 4, which we've not yet come to. 
But then fifthly, Pastor Hoffmeyer addressed that those who would become a member or who are members should be men and women who have been baptized upon their profession of faith in Christ. So we don't receive into church membership those who have not been biblically baptized as men and women. So those are the first five requirements. And now we move on to new material. Turning to Article 5, Roman numeral 5, Church Membership, Section 1, we read the sixth requirement for church membership. Only men and women who express agreement with the Confession of Faith of the Church, the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, and the Constitution of Trinity Baptist Church can become members. So you have to have an agreement with the Confession of Faith, an agreement with the Church Constitution. Now, our Church's Constitution and the Confession of Faith are not, as I trust you all know, they're not God-breathed documents. They're not inspired by the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, we believe that they provide a good summary and a good framework of biblical teaching regarding what we are to believe and how we are to live together as a church. The Constitution notes scriptures which support this requirement that prospective members and then members themselves that they express agreement with the Confession of Faith and the Church Constitution. So what are some of those scriptures? Well, one is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. And I would like you to turn in your Bibles to that passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Here is a passage that teaches this necessity that church members be in agreement with the Confession of Faith, with the Church Constitution. The principles are here in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. Paul, of course, wrote to the Christians there in the church in Corinth, Greece. Now I beseech you, brethren, through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfected together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And there we stop the reading of God's word. So this scripture underscores the vital importance of doctrinal, spiritual, and practical unity within the local church. And notice how Paul begins. He begins with an urgent appeal. This is not just some intellectual exercise on the part of the Apostle Paul. He said, he wrote, I beseech you, I beseech you, brethren. Well, what does he urge upon them? Paul urges the Christians in the church in Corinth that they must all speak the same thing. There's got to be agreement, unity in mind and heart concerning what we believe and how we will live together as a church. And then Paul says in this verse, they must all be 
perfected together in the same mind, in the same judgment. So speaking the same thing, having the same mind, having the same judgment. These three realities are vital in any biblical church. Only when God's people in the local church think alike, and of course you will have differences on a variety of things, some people love coffee, some people love tea. And concerning politics, there will be differences. Concerning the way money is spent by individual Christians, there will be differences. Concerning a variety of matters, there are differences. But only when God's people think alike and speak alike about God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the gospel, the church, only then can vital biblical unity be realized. Church members must, therefore, express intelligent, sincere, wholehearted agreement with the confession of faith and the church constitution. Again, they are under the Bible. That's what's necessary, though, in order to manifest and strengthen biblical church unity. It is not healthy for someone to be a maverick, wanting to do what I want to do, thinking everyone else in the church is clearly ignorant, and I only have the insight as to what is right. If you think that way, something's terribly wrong with your thinking, probably your heart. Unity, oneness of mind, speaking the same things, this is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. So church members must therefore express intelligent, sincere, wholehearted agreement with the confession of faith and the church constitution to manifest and strengthen biblical church unity. And where there is spirit-wrought biblical unity among the church members, there will also be biblical love. They're really connected together. When you think about biblical love, you shouldn't think somehow that's over here and doctrinal unity is over here and they don't actually meet together. No, they do meet together. <clears throat> Where spirit-wrought biblical unity among church members exists and is thriving, there will also be biblical love and there will be no divisions. And the word there that Paul used is the word schisms, or as Pastor Martin would always say, I think he always did this, schisms. Then he would say, the dictionary says both are perfectly legitimate. So schisms or schisms, that's the word. We want unity, we do not want divisions. John Owen affirmed this when he wrote, Church unity opposes schism, divisions, splits, suspicious speculations, maverick customs. Hope you all know what a maverick is. It's the guy or woman who thinks, I am the leader, I'm all by myself, and no one else is following me, but they should be. It also opposes unnecessary differences in judgment on spiritual things concerning the kingdom of Christ, end quote. So John Owen, the Puritan, understood the vital necessity 
of true spiritual unity in the local church. So that is the sixth requirement. So are you indeed promoting unity one with another in the church? That's what you should be doing. Do you have any maverick opinions? It can lead to disaster. There's a man who's a pastor that I met at the North Bergen Pastors Conference last year. And he had been moved, or he moved, to a new church within the past year. And he's been on the phone with Pastor Pinheiro, he's been on the phone with me, because there's a man in the church who has a maverick opinion on something. I'm not going to say what it was, but if I did tell you, you would be scratching your head and you would be saying, really? It's really off the wall. But he's determined that he is right in his maverick opinion and everyone else is wrong. And he's basically created a split. Now, thankfully, it's not a huge split. It's, it's again, not a church you would know of, but it has caused division about Six people have left with this man, so that's not a lot of people, but it's been really heartbreaking. We should never do that. We should never want that. It's not something at all that honors Christ. But now, a seventh requirement, according to that paragraph in our church constitution concerning church membership, is this. Only men and women who intend to give wholehearted support to the ministry of the church are to become members of the church. So you must intend and then follow through and give wholehearted support to the ministry of the church, this church. Turn now to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 3. Second Corinthians 8 and verse 3. For according to their power, I bear witness, yes, and beyond their power, they gave of their own accord, beseeching us with much entreaty in regard of this grace and the fellowship in the ministering to the saints. And this, not as we had hoped, but first they gave their own selves to the Lord and to us through the will of God. And there we stop the reading. So this is one of the texts that's used to support this instruction that men and women who want to be a part of the church and who are part of the church here at Trinity are to give wholehearted support to the ministry of the church. So looking at this passage, first of all, the Apostle Paul exhorted the Christians in the church in Corinth to give liberally, that's the context, for the needs of the suffering saints in Judea. When you look at the whole passage there uh, before and then into this chapter, chapter 8, you see this. Paul exhorted the Corinthians by placing the Macedonian believers before them as an example. And Paul stated that the Macedonians, those brethren and those churches in the area of Macedonia, they freely and willingly gave for the needs of others. They did this of their own accord, not by force or compulsion. 
And the Macedonians did this willingly and wholeheartedly by, first of all, following the instructions of the Apostle Paul on this specific matter of giving to the needs of the saints in Judea. And in the light of the example of the Macedonian churches, Paul now urges the Christians in the church in Corinth to do likewise, to follow his instructions, directions. They were to support the Apostle Paul wholeheartedly in this important matter. However, Paul makes it plain that the starting point, if you look there in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 3 through 5, the starting point for these believers was first to give themselves wholeheartedly and freely to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they could and should give themselves wholeheartedly to support their church leaders, their pastors, whom the exalted Lord Jesus Christ has given them to be their pastors. So again, the whole idea is that there's to be this unity, there's to be a support of the direction of the church, the direction that is given by the leaders in the church, and who are those leaders? It's the pastors that the exalted Christ has given to the church. So that's why this passage is used to support this teaching. But now turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. First Thessalonians chapter five and verse 12. But we beseech you, brethren, to know them that labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them exceeding highly in love for their works sake. Be at peace among yourselves. And there we stop our reading. So this passage is given again for this purpose, to help us to understand what we should do as church members, supporting the actual ministry of the local church. So it underscores this passage, this reality. There should be wholehearted support of the ministries of the church. And this will always include at least these two realities. First of all, what does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 5? You must know your pastors who labor among you, who rule you, who admonish you. If you are to support your pastors and the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church wholeheartedly as members of the church, then you must take the initiative to get to know your pastors. We have the responsibility to get to know you, but here in this passage, it's your responsibility actually to get to know us. So how do you do that? Well, you can invite us over for coffee. Even better, coffee and dessert. <laughs> Maybe coffee, dessert, and a meal. Actually, you don't need to invite us over for coffee, dessert, and a meal. You can do that. You just talk to us. You know, take the initiative. Talk to us. If you want to wholeheartedly support the ministry of the local church, this church, part of that involves getting to know your pastors. Again, we should know you, but you can take the initiative to know us. 
But also, secondly, you must esteem. You see that here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. You must esteem your pastors highly in love because of their work. The work's not easy. It's actually very involved. At times, can be very uh, burdensome, not in a bad sort of way, but can be burdensome. But you need to esteem your pastors highly in love because of their work. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote here to the Christians in the church in Thessalonica. So if you are to support your pastors and the ministry of Trinity Baptist Church wholeheartedly, you must esteem your pastors. Well, what does that word esteem mean? I find this is always challenging for myself, at least. You know, we use words and we know what they mean, but then when you have to define them, it's not always so easily done. But to esteem means to value, to actually treasure, to think highly of your pastors. That's what you're to do. We're certainly not perfect. We're certainly not sinless. We certainly do sin. We do make mistakes. But nevertheless, if we are genuine Christians, we will deal with our mistakes, our sins. And you are to think highly of your pastors. You're to value them, treasure them. But notice Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, in verse 13, he says you're to esteem them exceeding highly. Not just esteem them, but esteem them superabundantly. And then notice he says you're to do this highly in love. So with a love that is principled, a love that is affectionate. That's the kind of heart attitude that you're to have. And that's necessary if you're going to support your pastors and support the work of your pastors. So regarding Paul's words in this passage, John Calvin wrote the following. This work is the edification of the church, the eternal salvation of souls, the restoration of the world, and in short, the kingdom of God and Christ. The excellence and the splendor of this work are beyond value. We are, therefore, to think highly of those whom God makes ministers of so great a task. So, brethren, that's what you are to do. You are to esteem your pastors exceeding highly in love for their work's sake. Calvin enforces that. But now... An eighth requirement, moving on. Only men and women who are willing to submit to the church's government are to become members of Trinity Baptist Church. Turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. Only men and women who are willing to submit to the church's government are to become members of Trinity Baptist Church. Acts 2, verse 41. They then that received his word, Peter's word, on the day of Pentecost, were baptized, and there were added unto them in that day about 3,000 souls. 
And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship in the breaking of bread and the prayers. And there we stop the reading. So in these verses, Luke recorded what the new believers in the Jerusalem church did. Upon hearing and believing the word of God and the gospel, they were then baptized and they became members of the church in Jerusalem. Luke then highlights four activities in which these church members were engaged. Notice that. And I believe Luke is using, as it were, verbal shorthand here, the four activities. They listened to the apostles' teaching. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. Secondly, they were involved in fellowship with the believers. They continued in that fellowship. Verse 42 there. Thirdly, they partook in the breaking of bread. And fourthly, they participated in the prayers. So those are the four activities that Luke highlights. So with very succinct words, Luke tells us that the members of the church in Jerusalem gathered together on the Lord's Day. He, do he doesn't say that explicitly, but I believe that's what he is wanting us to understand. They gathered together on the Lord's Days to hear the teachings of the apostles the members of the church also engaged in fellowship with other church members and no doubt with strangers, visitors, etc., but specifically with other church members on the Lord's days and no doubt they did this on other days of the week when possible. When the Lord's Supper, and I believe uh, my fellow pastors may differ, I don't think they do, but regarding the breaking of bread, I believe the, that Luke was referring to the Lord's Supper. So when the Lord's Supper was celebrated by the Jerusalem church, the members of the church were present and they partook of the bread and the cup. And then the last reality is the prayers. The prayers, not just prayers, but the prayers. So church prayer meetings were a regular and vital part of the life of the Jerusalem church and the members attended those prayer meetings. Now, how they handled that, I don't know. And Luke doesn't explain it because of course there were thousands of church members and how they all gathered together for prayer meetings, I don't know. It would seem they gathered in the temple for those prayer meetings. We do know in the book of Acts, at least one occasion, which I will refer to, they gathered in the home of a member of the church for a church prayer meeting for a special reason, a special crisis. So, but I think that we can say this is what Luke is telling us. These four activities, it was worship and hearing the word of God on the Lord's days. It was fellowshipping with one another in the church. It was partaking of the Lord's Supper when that was celebrated. And it was gathering together for the church prayer meetings. But notice also from Acts 2, verses 41 and 42. Luke, remember he was a physician. He was very observant. The astute and observant physician Luke then tells us the manner in which all of the believers in the church in Jerusalem engaged in these four activities. 
Notice what he says there. They continued steadfastly. Well, what does that mean? It means they persisted in adhering to these specific practices. It means they were purposefully, intently engaged in these practices. It means they attended constantly, constantly to these practices. This is what they did. So, of course, the question is, is this what you, as a member of the church, are doing? Of course, there's always those providential realities that create problems. A sick child in the home, or a sick father, or a sick dad, or some other uh, unusual circumstances. But if you put those all aside, are you, as a church member, presently following the example set before us by God in the Word of God concerning life in the local church. We see it here clearly in Acts 2, verses 41 and 42. So in governing the Church of Trinity Baptist Church, your pastors, through our church constitution, actually require members to attend the three services on the Lord's Day. That's not being a legalist. I get very tired of hearing those accusations, which are so unfounded and false. Uh, it's not being a legalist. It's understanding the word of God. It's also understanding the reality of remaining sin and corruption in our hearts. It's also understanding we live in a hostile world. It's also understanding we have a very active devil who loves to separate the sheep from other sheep loves to separate any sheep from pastors, loves to do that. Divide and conquer, a standard military tactic. Having been an officer in the army, that is definitely something that has stood the test of time in military warfare. You divide, you will conquer. We're not to be divided, you see. We're to be united in these practices. So the three services on the Lord's Day, the prayer meeting on Wednesday night, unless providentially hindered. So are you willingly and cheerfully fulfilling these responsibilities and privileges? That's the other thing that sometimes people get the wrong idea. Well, it's a responsibility and it's looked at negatively. No, it is a responsibility. You have a responsibility to Love your wife as Christ loves the church. That's a responsibility. It should not be regarded as something that's a drudgery. It should be a delight, though it is a responsibility. So we are to engage in these responsibilities willingly, cheerfully. Are you doing that? Are you asking God to make your heart a heart of good soil to receive the word of God when you come here on the Lord's days to hear the ministry of the word of God. If you're not doing that, you should do that. Plead with God, make my heart a heart of good soil to receive the word of God, to receive the ministry of my pastors. Regarding the vital importance of prayer in the church, hear the words, brief words, of the Puritan Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson, if you've never read his writings, you should. He's very uh, gifted with just 
capturing truth in a very uh, picturesque and succinct way. So listen to these words of Thomas Watson. The angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. I'll say that again. You know the instance there in the book of Acts. The apostle Peter is chained to guards in a jail in Jerusalem. And we're told in that part of Acts that the church gathered together in the home of Mary, if my memory is correct. They were having, it would seem, a lengthy, perhaps all-night prayer meeting, praying that God would have mercy and release Peter from jail. So Thomas Watson says very uh, succinctly here, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Well, that's true, of course. Well, how was that done? It was through that church prayer meeting, an extraordinary church prayer meeting, clearly not the ordinary weekly church prayer meeting, but it was a church prayer meeting there in that house at night where they were asking together that God would have mercy upon them as a church in Jerusalem and upon Peter. And so their prayers fetched that angel who fetched Peter out of prison. So we need to remember even more importantly the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And that passage, the immediate context is church discipline, but the principle would apply to other situations within the local church. So even where two or three are gathered together on a Wednesday night in a church prayer meeting, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is there. But we don't want two or three. And you say, well, my presence, what does it really matter? You can say in true humility, my presence, what does it really matter? I'm a nobody. Well, we're all nobodies. We're all nobodies, really, in one sense. But no, the more who are present united in prayer, does that gain the attention, if I may speak that way, of God? I believe it does. He will not desert us if it's only two or three. But how much more if we're all together praying earnestly for the needs of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the work of missionaries, for the work of other biblical churches in the world, for the work right here in northern New Jersey of Trinity Baptist Church. That's what we need to be doing. So this is part of the commitment to be a member of the church. But now another passage that the Constitution mentions is Hebrews 13. So turn there, please. Hebrews 13 and verse 17. So again, the requirement that we're considering is that only men and women who are willing to submit to the government of Trinity Baptist Church are to become members of Trinity Baptist Church. The first passage was Acts 2, but now Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit to them, for they watch in behalf of your souls as they that shall give account that they may do this with joy and not with grief, for this were unprofitable for you. And there we stop the reading. So in this passage, 
Christians are given two clear commands. Obey and submit. Well, who are the individuals that Christians are to obey and to submit? Well, they are to obey and submit to those who have the rule over them. Well, who are they? They're pastors in their local church. Now, we live in an age in which people do not like authority. We need to recognize that as Christians. You see it in our society. People do not like someone in authority over them. We all want to be independent. But that's not the teaching of God's word here, you see. So Christians in the church are to obey and submit to those who have the rule over them, their pastors in the local church. You're not to obey your pastors if they command you to do something that is sinful, something that is clearly unbiblical. But there are times when there are judgment calls. And as with a husband in a home, with his wife, with children, sometimes he makes a decision and it's a judgment call. Well, the response of the children or the wife shouldn't be, no, I don't like your judgment and I'm not going to follow your judgment. It's very carnal and sinful. Likewise, in the church, there are judgment calls at times. But Christians are so to obey and submit to their pastors in the church. Notice what it says there in verse 17, so that your pastors will have joy and not grief. That's actually a motivation for you as a church member or prospective member to want to be obedient and submissive in a godly way to your pastors. It will bring them joy. You like it when you're filled with joy. We like it when we're filled with joy as well. Such obedience and submission is also, note from Hebrews 13, 17, beneficial for the specific member of the church. If you're not obedient, you're not submissive, it's not profitable for you, it's unprofitable for you. So you receive a benefit as well. But what do these two words, obey and submit, mean? Again, as I said earlier in this class, we use words, but then to define them, sometimes it's challenging. Well, bound up in these two words, obey and submit, are the ideas of trust, confidence, being persuaded or convinced, and of course, obedience. So trust. It's hard to obey someone if you don't trust them. If you think they're a liar, if you think they're a scoundrel, if you think they're uh, a thief or whatever it may be. And you see how this relates to knowing those who rule over you. Because as you know your pastors, you should hopefully, if we're biblically qualified, realize with whatever quirks and idiosyncrasies my, that pastor has in the church, thinking of myself, not my fellow pastors, he's not a scoundrel. He's not a thief. He's not a liar. You see, there's to be trust, not suspicion. There's to be confidence, not always second guessing. There's to be a persuasion, being convinced that this man wants the good of me individually, but also the good of all of the people of God in the church. 
and the good of sinners, you see. So bound up is this reality, trust, confidence, being persuaded, convinced, and then obedience. Preaching upon this very passage, Pastor Albert N. Martin, of course, many of you know who he is, but there are many who do not know who he is at this point in history and time. Former pastor in this church, he wrote, not wrote, he preached the following concerning this passage, Hebrews 13, 17. And so I'm quoting him. What is this obedience? What is this obedience and, and submission? It is a yielding and obeying which rests upon the persuasion that the doctrine given, the duties enjoined, and the admonitions administered are indeed the word and the mind of the living God. It is the kind of obedience that is rendered intelligently and volitionally under the conviction that what is required is right. End quote. That's what he said concerning this verse. So when you as a member of Trinity Baptist Church or a prospective member of Trinity Baptist Church take to heart the commands of Hebrews 13, 17, you will find it easy to submit willingly to the government of this local church. So that's the eighth requirement in that paragraph in the church constitution. Now we move on to the ninth and the last in that paragraph. Only men and women who are willing to submit to the discipline of the church are to become members of the church. Only men and women who are willing to submit to the discipline of the church are to become members of the church. Biblical church discipline should never be viewed as something that is unnecessary. It's not something that is pleasant, but it should never be viewed as something that is unnecessary. It should never be viewed as something that is outdated, something that is harmful, or something that is unloving. As the Bible instructs parents to discipline their children with both formative discipline as well as corrective discipline for their spiritual and practical good, so also the Bible instructs the church, the local church, to use both the formative and corrective discipline for the spiritual and practical good of the members of the church. So, formative discipline. That's instruction from the Word of God that you're getting right now. That's formative discipline, actually. Just as parents will take aside their, their son or their daughter, whether a young son, young daughter, or older, it matters not, and they are instructing that son or daughter concerning biblical principles, concerning biblical truth, concerning biblical behavior, that's formative discipline. But then there's corrective discipline, isn't there? When the son or daughter has done something sinful and they need correction. Likewise, it is in the local church. So by becoming a member or being a member of Trinity Baptist Church, each individual should understand and embrace this twofold reality 
of church discipline, formative and corrective. But now let's focus a little bit upon the reality of corrective discipline. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18 and verse 15. Matthew 18 and verse 15. Very well-known passage, probably for most of you, if not all of you. Matthew 18, verse 15. And if your brother sin against you, go, show him his fault between you and him alone. If he hear you, you have gained your brother. But if he hear you not, take with you one or two more, that at the mouth of two witnesses or three, every word may be established. And if he refuse to hear them, tell it unto the church. And if he refuse to hear the church also, let him be unto you as the Gentile and the tax collector. Truly I say unto you, whatsoever things you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever things you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And there we stop the reading. Now, there's quite a few things that could be said about this passage. I'm not going to say everything. But one thing I would begin by noting is this is not the only passage in the Bible that addresses the matter of corrective church discipline. So we need to remember that. Number two, notice in verse 15, if your brother sin against you. We're not talking about in this passage, where somebody has done something or said something, you didn't particularly like it. But if you step back and compare what was said or done with the Ten Commandments, let's say, and you ask the question, is that sin? Sometimes we're bothered by something, but what the person did really wasn't sinning against us. So in Matthew 18, if your brother sin against you, go show him his fault. Now, if you're bothered by something and it's not sin, you probably still should go to that brother or that sister and speak to them so that you don't have any wall between you. But I'm just making that distinction here from the passage. There's other matters to be noted. And J.C. Ryle is very helpful on this. So I'm going to quote J.C. Ryle the English pastor, writer of the 1800s in uh, obviously a previous generation. J.C. Ryle commenting on Matthew 18, 15 to 18, he wrote these words. I'm not reading everything he wrote about this, but what is pertinent to us. So Ryle wrote, how admirable are the rules laid down by our Lord for the healing of differences among brethren. If we have unhappily received any injury from a fellow member of Christ's church, the first step to be taken is to visit him alone and tell him his fault. You don't gossip. How frequently Christians, sadly, don't obey this and they gossip. No, you're to go to that individual speak to him alone about his sin or fault. 
Ryle goes on, this friendly, faithful, straightforward way of dealing is the most likely course to win a brother if he is to be won. So notice, friendly. You should go to someone else not like a tank or a bulldozer. You should go friendly. It's a friendly, faithful individual. Ryle continues, if, however, this course of proceeding fails to produce any good effect, a second step is to be taken. We are to take with us one or two companions and tell our brother of his fault in their presence and hearing. Who can tell but his conscience may be stricken when he finds that his misconduct made known is made known and he may then indeed be ashamed and repent? So that's the next step, if necessary. But then Ryle continues, Finally, if this second course of proceeding prove useless, we are to refer the whole matter to the Christian congregation of which we are members. And that's the end of Ryle's quotation. Now, there's lots of questions you should raise about this passage. Well, how do you tell it to the church? Do you come forward on a Sunday? Stand down there and just say, I have something to say to everyone here in the church about brother so-and-so? Of, of course not. You don't do, is that seemly? Is that proper? Is that love? No. But we're not addressing that right now. That's not the point of this class this morning. So, if a sinning brother or sister continues in a pattern of impenitence after being admonished as prescribed here in Matthew 18, then the church, the members of the church, instructed and led by the pastors of the church, must implement biblical corrective church discipline. And there are several purposes in church discipline, and one of those purposes is the recovery and restoration of the sinning member of the church so that he or she is brought back into the pathway of biblical holiness. Members of Trinity Baptist Church must be willing to submit themselves to such biblical church discipline should it ever become necessary. But now turn to Acts chapter 5 and verse 13. This is another passage given in the church constitution. Acts chapter 5 and verse 13. You're, you know probably the majority of you this passage. I'll speak about it as we go on. But of the rest dared no man join himself to them, howbeit the people magnified them, and believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. There we stop the reading. So with these words, Luke recorded the consequences of the discipline of two members of the church in Jerusalem, Ananias and his wife Sapphira, who sold their property, gave a portion of the proceeds to the church, while declaring, however they did it is not clear, that they were giving the entire proceeds to the church, but actually were not. So they wanted to be seen as generous, benevolent, giving the entire proceeds of the sale of this property, but they actually were not giving it all. They held back some. 
That's what they did. And Peter was, this was revealed to Peter clearly by the Holy Spirit. He charged them with the sin of lying to the Holy Spirit, and they were disciplined by the Lord, and they were slain for their deception. And because of this church discipline, clearly an extraordinary case of church discipline, many were told here in Acts 5 were afraid to become members of the church. But we're also told there in Acts 5 that others, those whom the Lord was saving from their sins, even multitudes, became members of the church in Jerusalem. So it was an extraordinary case of church discipline. And it is given to us by God, the Holy Spirit, so that we will behold the necessity and the seriousness of church discipline. So in this passage, we see additional purposes for biblical church discipline. There is the maintenance of the purity of the local church. There is the maintenance of the credibility of the local church before an onlooking world. There's the promotion of the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church and in the world. So those are just two passages that support why we as church members and prospective members must be willing when it, was, when it is necessary to submit ourselves to or be engaged in this reality of biblical church discipline. So by way of quick review, what are the nine basic requirements for membership in Trinity Baptist Church? Members must be any man or woman who professes repentance toward God, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, who manifests a transformed life by the power of Christ, who is living a life consistent with the provisions, of course, of the word of God, but also our church constitution, who has been baptized upon profession of faith, who's in agreement with the confession of faith and the constitution under the Bible, of course, who intends to give wholehearted support to the church and its ministries, who is willing to submit to the government of the local church, who's willing to submit to the discipline of the church. So who can do this? I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. We can't do any of this in our own strength, in our own wisdom. So brethren, don't be discouraged. Be encouraged that the Bible teaches these truths, these realities. It's really not just the Constitution or the Confession of Faith. So be encouraged and realize I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. God's grace is always sufficient for us. So let's close now in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, which is so broad and at the same time is so specific where there is a need for such details. We thank you for your holy word and ask that you would help each one of us to embrace your word, to embrace afresh the Lord Jesus Christ and to live lives in this world and in this local church in such a manner that pleases you and honors you. Help us, Lord, to encourage one another, exhort one another while it is yet day, and to remember that we can indeed do all things 
through faith in Jesus Christ, through union with Jesus Christ, all things that you require of us as your people. So receive our prayers, our thanksgiving, in Jesus' name. Amen.